Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. We've got a lovely guest today. They've done countless shorts, the wonderful Channel 4 Random Act, Crashing Waves, which was nominated for an Iris Prize, and they followed that up by attending the National Film and Television School and eventually making the wonderful horror-tinged drama Requiem, starring Bella Ramsey of The Last of Us fame and Sophia Oakley-Green, who stars in the upcoming horror The Origin, and went on to win an RTS award for Best Drama, beating out some incredible competition that's me and they have got since gone on to shadow mary harron who directed american psycho and uh, phil barantini who is the director of boiling point most recently has been directing lots of second unit on the upcoming series of silent witness amongst others um which will also be the focus of our episode today so welcome to the podcast m gilbertson clap um thanks for having me it's always wild when you hear your achievements being read out loud right no i like it so it kind of reminds you how much you've done sometimes it's a bit surreal in it but yeah and em where are you right now uh, i'm in my mum's pub in liverpool i was just gonna say like it's an audio podcast but behind her there's like a massive collection of guitars it's all very cool it's like a funky pub that one there was mine as a kid and then i give that up but i'd take on filmmaking that sounded a lot easier how wrong you were <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I'm, I live in the pub, but I do I still have my day job in the pub as well. So I'll I'll start with that little uh, bubble bursting reality. Well, I mean, that's what this whole thing is about: is kind of demystifying what the whole thing is. Because um, I guess Requiem is just released on online, right? Is currently blowing up, and obviously it's got great cast attached. On the surface, maybe people think that you're sunning it up in LA in a mansion somewhere, but the reality is very, very different to what you kind of perceive it to be, isn't it? Yeah, I know it's so funny. Like I um have like this person who I've met through Instagram and they're a makeup artist and they were like, Oh, I thought you were a proper director. I was like, Well, I am a proper director. I'm just not a proper working director. I'm not constantly working. I do my gigs. But it's good because it is becoming more frequent and more opportunities are coming. So I'm quite hopeful about the future really. Yeah, the ball's absolutely rolling for you. So just so the audience know where we're going, we'll just go straight into the question is, what is second unit directing? So I'm glad you asked. I've been doing a outreach to like schools in Liverpool and stuff, and I've had to explain this so many times. So hopefully I do a good job. You're prepared. Basically, when you watch an episode of TV, you have someone like me who comes in and I might like shoot some of the scenes or like some of the B-roll. And if I've done, done my job well enough. And what is B-roll? Sorry. just I actually don't have to explain B-roll. <laughs> How, how do you explain B-roll? It's just like extra footage that you get to like kind of... Supporting footage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> um, Sorry, I threw you off. Yeah, you did. Uh, it's uh, If I've done my job well enough, then you shouldn't be able to tell like what's me and what's the lead director. So I like, a lot of the time I'll watch all the rushes and I'll read all the scripts and I'll try and know it as best as I can. And I just have to fit into this bigger kind of jigsaw. So essentially, like, there's lead, lead directors and, like, second block and third block directors, so on and so on. They'll be the ones in charge of the episodes. But because of the schedule being so tight, sometimes they need another unit to go off and shoot supplementary footage. So it could be a scene with 
uh, actors or sometimes lower level cast. If I mean, that's a bad thing to say, but sometimes like people who aren't the lead cast um, or you could just be doing like location shots and, and scenes for montage and things like that, right? Yeah, and like one of the jobs I did, I just basically went and recreated what the director had already done because when they shot it, it didn't match the weather. Mm. And that's how I ended up getting it as well because I was literally there the right place at the right time. Mm. But yeah, I've done like, more sub taxi scenes and recently I did some action scenes which was fun you you were saying that you know you read all the scripts and did you watch dailies as well oh actually I didn't watch dailies I watched all the assemblies though uh, so I like got to know that footage really well one of the programs I did last year was malpractice which is uh directed by Saul Barantini which was obviously like massive pressure because BAFTA none and like I'm trying to live up to someone that's so incredible with actors you know whether or not I don't think I probably achieved it to his caliber, but like I was aiming to do that. It would be good to know why you chose to work in film and how you even got into it. So I'm like mad dyslexic. Um, and I was like one, I was that type of kid at school. Like I wasn't naughty. I was pretty quiet. I went a bit under the radar. Um, and, you know, I was just seen as quite a bright kid, but I never like matched up to like those, like, you know, in exams and stuff. I, I end up getting like diagnosed with dyslexia like later on. Um, but I'd always been super fascinated in film. During my A-levels, we, we were like picking and my mom was like, oh, why don't you do a film degree? Um, a film, A-level, I was like, what am I going to do with that? You know, <laughs> that's a mm. bit of a like pointless degree. But I was doing um, that in English literature at the same time and an art course. Um, kind of all three of those things basically led me to wanting to do film the reason I really like kind of gravitated towards it is because when I was doing photography in my art classes my teacher was like that's really good and I think it's like the first time I remember like a teacher telling me I was good at something and I also think as well because I'm like a December baby like all my birthdays and Christmases are just like really happy memories of going to cinema so I just like kind of had like positive uh, attachments to it what was the second part to your question uh, it was just how you how you got into the industry. That was all, yeah. I did a BTEC, um, and then I did my undergraduate. Um, I, originally, I wanted to be a cinematographer. Um, and what was your BTEC in? Because obviously, that's a vocational route, isn't it? Oh yeah, it was in film film and TV production. Um, so I did a film A level, a film BTEC, and then a film uh, undergraduate, and then a film masters. Uh, what was I going to say? Sorry, I told you, I'm, I uh, like, this is not even me just saying frivolously, like, I'm dyslexic. Like, this is the struggle on a daily basis. I yeah, can just yeah. never remember what I'm saying. No, you're good. Um, I went to cinematography and then kind of found my way into directing. And then at the end of the school, Random Max came in and we're like, we're looking to make a film in a different medium with a unique perspective. And I pretty much instantly had the idea for cr Crashing Waves, like, in that second. Mm. So I pitched for it and then I got it. Um and I made the film and in between like making that film I had like a year where I wasn't doing anything because I couldn't drive like no I was working don't get me wrong but like I wasn't doing anything film related mm. and um applied to NFTS and yeah here, here we are I guess which is pretty nuts because that was the first time you applied for it as well right and you're also 24 when you applied yeah, I, I and I realize that now, like, even when I look at um, Requiem, I, I can feel my growth, like, when I watch it, which is a little bit painful. I think it's still a good film, but I think we're really critical about our work. But yeah, I was I was 24 when um, I got in the school. And, and in some ways, I'm like, was I a little bit too young? 
because I, I don't think I really truly knew myself at 24 and I know myself a bit better now um but yeah like I'm really grateful it went like it, it it was amazing the way I look at things is that like if the universe chose to put you there then you were supposed to be there basically yeah oh I like that regardless of where you, where you were in your career like if if you were there it was the right thing for you to do and you needed it um and you're kind of doing the right things now as well so it's all just part of your journey right I, I think so yeah I feel very hopeful about the future actually compared to how I used to feel <laughs> it would be good to know how you felt stepping into the NFTS environment because it'd be good to know if like you had like imposter syndrome or anything like that because I think there's a viewpoint with NFTS with that everyone that goes there is extremely minted and it's not always the case that everyone is just like full of privilege and it's like a privilege to go there and to be able to kind of like do the course but um it's not the case for everyone right yeah, I mean, I, I was really lucky because I got a full scholarship from Channel 4. But, like, I remember, like, the lead-up to when we'd been accepted and before the foundation course. And um, even when we were on the foundation course, I was like, I'm not coming here because I can't afford it. Like, I was like, it's going to get ripped from my hands and someone else is going to, you know, be given it. Um, and I was really stressing. And, I mean, honestly, like, I'm, I feel pretty bankrupt having been to the school now because of, like, various loans that I have to get out in order to pay um not that I don't regret it um but yeah I guess I, f I don't know how to I don't know how honestly to answer your question because I, I I guess I did feel like I was probably one of the most skint people at the school a lot of the time because I when when I when I was studying there I was like you know like weekends and stuff I mean, partly I go to the cinema every weekend because I want to be the best filmmaker ever. So I'm like watching as many films as I can. But like also like I couldn't afford to like go to London or whatever else. So I just had to kind of stay in one spot. Um, and yeah, I, I found it's weird. Like I think I felt more pressure at that school than I feel in the industry. There's a weird sense of competition there, isn't there? <laughs> Funny, mildly. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of big characters there as well. I definitely felt like a little bit um, engulfed by it all, uh, especially like because I was I was 24 and I did have imposter syndrome and I'm also just naturally a bit anxious. I'm just a massive people pleaser and that's just not an attribute you can really be as a director. It's good to be collaborative and to listen to people around you, but um, you have got to know who you are and what your taste is, I think. Um, saying that, I, 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 I loved it. Like, I loved pretty much all of it and it was amazing so I you know I don't regret it or nothing I loved it like yeah obviously my circumstances as an adult has changed like massively from through family but um growing up like it was a different story so it was a bit weird so going to the NFTS I remember going there and like everyone well not everyone but most people uh spoke more than one language and most people regardless of whether they were even doing a music course they could also play an instrument oh. I remember like just being like feeling so stupid really yeah in, in that sense yeah like, I, I learned to play the guitar during knockdown because like I was like I need to do better um because <laughs> growing up like there's not a single member of my family like who plays an instrument there's not a single one that speaks any other language like everyone is just sort of like just in their sort of like very like normal jobs and like and mm -hmm. in the houses and it's just kind of yeah just regular life so going somewhere like that was the first time I'd seen how like people of privilege live <laughs> that's so interesting I never noticed the two languages and an instrument thing but it's nuts right yeah 
But it's interesting though, M, that you that you coped with that by just focusing even more on your craft because that's what's in your control. That's what you can do. You know, watching movies and whatnot. To be honest, I feel like I have relied a lot on my talent in the past and not doing enough studying. So like when I went to the school, I was like, no, I need to, I need to watch as much as I can and I need to learn from the masses. And it's even like now, like um, I, I've been, actually me and Marcus were speaking the other day about blocking and stuff. So I've been studying that more recently. And um, there's a really great book called A Practical Handbook for the Actor. It was created by a group of students who are working with David Mamet. And it really goes in like the detail of how to break down a script for actors which i think is really useful for directors the book is just about taking apart a script and like how an actor does that and how they can learn to read the subtext in order to find out like what the character is and um what the character's goal is and how that fits into an overarching kind of journey for a character as well because if i get given a script for a tv show then i you know i will break it down and yeah, I found it really helpful to then talk to actors once I'd kind of do this process. And it, I think it takes a while to get really good at it. I still feel like I'm, you know, learning about the process, but you know, if I keep doing it now in five years, I'll be really good at it, so. Just to kind of like move towards the end of the journey, the NFTS, so you made Requiem, which I think I previously said it stars uh, Bella Ramsey and beat out some exceptional exceptional competition for an RTS award <laughs> uh, and it's uh, it's just released online um, I think it racked up a quarter of a million views in like 24 hours which is which is wild but it's a very it's got a very strong tone to it so I was wondering how you went about sort of crafting that the tone of it mm. um, well actually I want to say something about why it's racked up so many views um, and it's all because of Gen Z and I'm absolutely <laughs> obsessed with them and I guess it just hit like teenage girls love it like because it hits like tragedy and it's about romance and so they're all making like TikTok edits which yeah. like blew up and then like everyone was sending me the TikTok edits that had like, had, like you know hundreds of thousands of views and that kind of went over um to YouTube and I seem to have broken a lot of like tween suffix which I feel really bad about because it's also like a massive trauma story as well Tonally, I think like I mean obviously me and Laura and Michelle worked together on the script and I think the tone was in the script and I think it just the way that the like look of it just developed obviously we were shooting during lockdown which meant that we couldn't you know have people within two meters of each other and that was something we knew going in and also like we're trying to make quite an ambitious like period piece on a very relatively like small budget for what we were trying to do from the beginning we were like okay we know that we have these limitations the story is like about repression so like why don't we make that part of the storytelling so that's like how the language developed and that's why like a lot of it is very static and you know minimal um, but also we drew influence from like Ida and the White Ribbon because that they do, I mean, they do it a lot better. But like we've taken, you know, inspiration from that. And then, of course, we looked at a lot of elevated horrors. So like stuff like The Witch and Midsummer. And it's so funny because like a conversation that we had in pre-production was like, is this a horror? 
Mm. Um, and I, I think it is, but it's just not like a supernatural horror. It's just the reality of it is hor- horrifying. Yeah. So like a lot of people are on YouTube are like, this is a tragedy, it's not a horror. Mm. And I guess because it's on Alter as well, which is like a horror YouTube. Yeah. Like, oh, yours is on there too, isn't it? And uh, the retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think people, you know, an audience might have an expectation about like what they're going into. At one point, um, we did talk about having like a lot of ceiling space to make it feel like um, Evelyn was more like kind of trapped and we wanted to do for free. And all of our references were black and white mm. and we were gonna like, at one point we were considering that, but like there was so much fire. I was like, we definitely like need to have it in color. And um, we wanted to shoot on film, but it just was not going to be practical mm. because A, I, I mean, I don't feel, I feel more confident with actors now, but at the time I was like, I'm not confident enough to like nail these performances in like one or two takes, but then also the special effects. Like, it, it just like, it just wasn't practical. Um, so yeah, we went for digital and then we tried to create like a filmic look. Did I see enough on turn? <laughs> like, I've, I've seen it before so I, I saw it when the grad show came out and I watched it again obviously in prep for this and one of the things that I really liked was how you really sold the world with it and it shot beautifully as well like those moments when they're together it's just beautiful I mean I, I did a hell of a lot of research like into that time period as, and I watched a, like a lot of films like I must have watched 120 films like on the lead up to making it that covered either like similar topics or like um you know we're about witches and and things like that um i think in terms of the world again it was really tricky because we couldn't have that many people because of COVID. (laughs) we storyboarded like everything and i don't normally storyboard but like well i guess i i come up with shot lists and then like throw them away more so now actually like i don't follow my storyboards as much but there was no way for that project we could have not storyboarded it we needed to know exactly like how many people we could have um like if, even in the church it's like people are actually two meters apart and they're in bu- and they're in bubbles of two and it's like we've shot it at a certain angle and used a certain lens to make it feel like they're closer than what they actually are um and in terms of like this i i to be honest i think it looks a little bit empty in the opening scene um I think people are watching the performance though, so they don't really care about that too much. But I would have like much preferred like a lot more people. I mean, Freddie, who did our production design, is just like absolutely incredible. He um he really pushed to get real locations. He did not want to shoot on a set, so all the buildings in the film are actually like from the time period, and they've been rebuilt on site, which is amazing. Um he also just like does a lot of research himself he's very like i don't know like methodical and just has a brilliant eye so a lot of the the world building is definitely because of him and then ashley who did our costume like and she did my costume on crashing waves as well um i ashley connor is what she goes by on instagram um and freddie borrows if you want to check them out um but Ashley and I just have like a really good relationship and Ashley actually comes from a stylist background um has done stuff with Vogue and yeah they're, they're just, they just got a really good eye for it and I thought that those two would kind of pair together quite well um because I think the tastes are actually quite not similar I know one's like design like production design and one's costume but I felt like it would be a good marriage same with Joe as well 
um so i can't you know they a lot of the visual stuff was very much theirs even like stuff like with the camera where it moves around it was all very planned out like every instant like we very purposeful about like how we use people and where we place them um because we, we just had no option but to be that was just how it was and it's so sad as well because it feels like you know we made those films during um the, like just after the first lockdown we had no idea what was going on and it's like no one cares about that yeah it's being judged against all the other films which have been made so when it comes to short films i think you have two types you have the concept short and the condensed feature and the concept short is normally like a small idea two people in a location um that i think does pretty well on the festival scene and then you have a condensed feature which is something like requiem for example where that easily could be a feature film and they're typically a lot longer and a lot more complicated but they i think do better with agents or production companies because they can see that you're capable of doing longer format if you know what i mean i feel like there's a disconnect between like what festivals want and what producers and production companies want and it was so hard i think to get into festivals i think what happened was everyone held their films back so that when we were applying, there was like way more competition um, than normal. No, I think both our films actually, mine and Marcus and me, have, have done well. But like, yeah, it, it, it was just um, no one cared. And then we were just thrown into the industry and it was like, hello, <laughs> trying to see me film. Um, but yes. That's a, that's a good way to segue, actually, because I was going to say after you left the film school, there's there's a bit of a myth, I think, in the same way in which people think with agents is that you either get an agent and then your life's going to change or like you go to NFTS and that's it, your life's going to change. But what happened? What does that look like leaving the film school? Well, we got signed quite early, didn't we? I got signed, you got signed before grad show. Yeah, I got signed, um, I think in February and you were after the grad show. Yeah, yeah, with uh, independent talent, I believe. Yes, exactly. I got, I signed with them the week before grad show and I didn't want to like mention it until after the film. And my agent was actually there as well. Um, mm. And I signed with um, Independent and they were amazing. And they're still amazing. Like, you know, within like the first few weeks, I had like 60 meets with like different production companies. And within six months, I had my first interview for uh, uh, to direct an episode of TV, which is better and it's on iPlayer. Obviously, I didn't get it. So they were doing a lot and I started working on, I had an like, idea for a feature that I'm still kind of like developing. Um. I went and shadowed Mary Harron. Um, basically what happened was I got in touch with places I used to intern. Um, I used to intern at a place called Hurricane Films in Liverpool. And I was like, hi, I'm a director. Do you want to meet? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and so I met with them and, um, and you know, we had a general chat and uh, like a week later, they were like, we know this mentorship program coming um, to Liverpool. It's a quite an established director do you want to um, get involved? And it turned out to be Mary Harron, um, which was great. And it was on the set of Darley Land, um, which starred Sabine Kingsley. And it was good because I was just like, I mean, you know, I was wa- when I was watching Sabine Kingsley, right, I was thinking, I think there's two levels of like really good performers. There's a really good performer where it's like, you believe it, but then there's like this, the other type of performer who like reaches through the screen and you feel what they're feeling and it's like and it was mad to watch him perform because he is like really good um and I was watching Mary work 
I also did like some other bits, like you know, I had to go drop a bike off in London one day, and you know, just stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was like it was a mixture. I was like assisting as well as um, shadowing. Uh, finish that. Then, oh, then I went and first AD'd a feature film, which was a documentary fiction hybrid. Um, and then at the end of the year, I was working as an actor's assistant on a job. Um, the first assistant directing was actually a really good process because I'd seen like the Hollywood system. And then I was like, you know, looking at um, this independent piece. And Melanie Manshot's a really good director. But they're artists and photographer first. So it was like a very different process. So I was watching these features get made in very different ways um, with very different like influences and kind of figuring out like, you know, uh, like what type of stuff I'd like to work on really. Um, then at the start of last year, I did uh, two music videos um, for an artist called Cody Frost, uh, who was on The Voice like years ago. Um, and they've like just started like releasing an EP and that, and it was like very low budget. And I hadn't like directed anything in a while, so I was just like keen, you know, to um, get going. And then I did a second one on like a budget of seven hundred pound, which was like real guerrilla filmmaking. Um, and I shot on a DV tape as well, and it was only me, so I shot it and I rec- and and did the directing. It, but it, again, it was it was good to go back to like basics. Um, you know the last thing i made was requiem and and then i was just actually well here's the essentials here's a camera and you know two actors and actually i think the performances were pretty good that i got out of them and then unfortunately i fell off the stage during the second shoot and broke my heel of course yeah yeah yeah. so it kind of put you out of action right yeah for like six months and it was it was difficult because not even just the physical aspect but the mental toll it takes on you mm. i just didn't feel creative and i didn't go out for a long it was like going back into lockdown again anyway come summer uh rts happened and i was like completely like shell-shocked i was like i can't believe it like i just didn't expect it to happen and and then i met the panel and then I got my agents to email them. There was someone there from like Wow Productions, I think it's called as well. And then I had a meeting and they they basically asked me, they were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I, I want a shadow. And they were like, well, maybe get in touch because we have something in January on Silent Witness to shadow. I was like, cool. And then I'd met Phil Barantini like in the first year we'd left. It was before the feature had come out. It was when he like just on the short and we were chatting and at the time he was like oh I'm working on a TV show I'll try and get you on for an episode my agent arranged this meeting and we were chatting and then later on basically it was like an M come in shadow and I went in shadow bill for like three four days last year mm. and like I was saying earlier one of the things that they shot didn't match the weather and so they were like talking about needing a second unit director and it was so funny because the producer I'd met years ago at a working class event, filmmakers of night in London. And then someone who was like part of Wild Productions, I met at the Royal Television Society. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, I know all these people. And anyway, because they needed a second unit director and hello, here I was. It aligned. I was very lucky. I was very blessed. Like it was, it was good timing. So they asked me to come back and do some second unit work. And then I did two days on the shoot. That's mad though. Like one of the things that we talk about on this podcast, especially when me and Marcus are just doing episodes on our own, we do talk about how it is important. The whole out other outside of the creative bit of it, like the networking, 
maturing the relationships, nurturing those relationships, and look how that came full circle. Like all of those things just aligned for you. Yeah. That's brilliant. And it, But it happened with the Mary Harron thing as well. Because I was like working in Hurricane Studios, Hurricane Films even, making coffees. And they had like a cola chart on the wall, by the way. <laughs> it's like one to eight. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd done that. And, and that was when I've been doing outreach in schools. I've been telling them to plant seeds for later. Because I think there's this misconception about what networking is. It's like you've got to build a relationship. It's not. It's you just You just say, hi here's my face, this is what I do. And then years later, hopefully they remember you and then they think about you for other stuff. And it's actually not as hard, I think, as it as it's kind of made out to be. Hmm. How long did you have to prep? I had like two weeks for malpractice. I had like a day at, like on the Monday and then a day on the Friday. So I had two weeks before to get ready. So that's quite a bit of time. And then- That's a lot of time, yeah. Yeah. I got given the shot list uh, and the floor plan the night before and then went to the location just before we shot and like I had like an hour there. Um, and then obviously like in between the first and second day, I had three days to then, you know, rethink about everything that I'd learned on the first day. Um, and then on silent witness, it, I had like one day at the beginning of the month and the second day at the end of the month. And so I think I had like about like two weeks before um, I went on a tech recce and then we were shooting two weeks after that. So I went back and did another recce and then shot and then another two weeks, did another recce and then um, shot again. Okay. So, yeah. That's a lot of time then to do it. That's that's not very intimidating at all, right? Like, that's... I mean, it sounds like a lot of time, but also there's life, isn't there? So I'm, I'm balancing like my pub job. Sure. And um, just like other things as well. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not just like, here's like two days, here's the script. Yeah, not, not, yeah, it might happen. <laughs> yeah. So, but that sounds, that sounds like quite a safe environment for, for you to be kind of like dipping your toes into the TV waters, I guess. Yeah, I was, I was very, very blessed. Um, I'm very glad that I, I did both and they were such like different experiences as well. Like I learned a lot from Phil because I, I shadowed Phil and then, you know, stepped up for the second unit and it was a big step up and actually I'm I'm glad that I did the second unit and I didn't go straight into an episode because I would have been like what the heck is going on like I, I yeah it, it was like it felt like a way to step up a bit to learn the process and understand like how everything moves so what type of scenes like what sort of stuff was it was it two people in room was it like establishing shots what was it so I did two days on malpractice I did a scene around a table with a few characters and I did a scene with Neve Alger actually. When I did two scenes with Neve Alger, which is really cool. Um, but I didn't recognize her when I first met her, and I completely embarrassed myself because she did not look like in Calm of Horses like at all. And and so I was like, "Oh, this is Neve." Like, "Hi, what do you do?" Oh, is that what oh, you said? God. You asked Oh no! <laughs> Hi, Neve. What do you do? <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I've not just done that." And then and then Phil was like, "Um." Um, this is uh, the, the star of the show. And I was like, right, I'm embarrassed. But, you know, she was really like the sound about it. I think she found it, well, I don't know if she found it funny, but yeah. uh, it was it was cool. And then later on, she was like, oh, what what, what are you doing? Like, what are you up to? And we would, we would chat. And then I, I got to do a scene and she's, yeah, she's incredible. Like, she's amazing. Mm. And then we did like some, you know, inserts of a computer screen. It was an animation. We just like pointed the camera at it. So inserts are literally just like a shot which might not have a character in it but it's something you can cut away to so 
if someone is like you got your main cast on the computer like typing away then you might actually just have a cutaway of the screen and that that's basically what an insert is exactly just because this is for all skill levels that's all it was my very first day doing second unit and I, I, I listened to your first podcast and you guys were saying about like how people might get lucky and get you know into second unit without having that experience and they don't know what's going on and I think that's a little bit true for me like I, like the the first day was hard for me I mean Phil said he read like the footage and stuff so <laughs> you know uh, it probably all worked out but it was a bit of a shock to the system and I'd done a lot of prep for it as well and in that situation I've noticed like different directors do it differently like some directors are more specific about what they want and some directors kind of just let you do your thing um Phil Phil give us a shot list so we like followed it and a floor plan of the blocking yeah so uh, like because it because it, so, it was okay. a, it a table scene so i was trying to like fulfill it and i i done like a lot of prep and it was just you didn't have long though right to do quite a lot i remember you saying i remember thinking like i wish i'd had a bit more time but the second day was like was a lot smoother and when when i did one of the scenes with neve i kind of just went a bit rogue um <laughs> but still liked it <laughs> what do you mean by know, going rogue what did, what did you do i just did my own thing and what, like you, you bend off his shot list or well he didn't i don't i don't think he'd give me much of a shot list for it or if he did but all i all i can remember is being like this feels good so i'm gonna shoot it mm. and so i did and then he did he, he did he sent me a fire emoji when he seen it okay that's good that's what you <laughs> oh, want it's not, it's not a fire emoji it's like a little like you know a little blast kind okay. of thing yeah um you didn't put fire fire thing- 100 and then like <laughs> <laughs> yeah the thing to know about Phil is, right, and please put this in the in the pod, because he's incredibly generous with his knowledge. Like he he answered like all my questions, and his standard of work is like unbelievable. Like when I was watching his rushes, and on the day, it was like there was not a single mistake. It was perfect, and he never went overtime. And he was nice to everyone. And I was like, this is the standard. Mm-hmm. Like, and to me, that was like a real like wow like. I've got to like up my levels to match. I mean, not that I have to be like Phil, but my point is it, it's the standard in which he works yeah. is like what leads to good television. And um, they have answers I and learned... solutions to everything, right? Yeah, but it's like the the way Phil is, it's just like, he's just in his element. It's just like, there's not one ounce of panic. He's just like, you know, floating through. And it's like, wow, I want to be like Phil when I grow up. Yeah, yeah. But you don't know that until you see it and you're on set and then you might not yeah. be efficient in your own process. So you can kind of sag at points or, or flounder mm-hmm. at moments. But yeah, like when you see it, you kind of like, okay, that's... Yeah. His advice to me was to get an iPad as well, you know, to have my script done and stuff. Scriptation. I don't know if you... Yeah. yeah, like, which I always just had like paper versions of the script and it's like on my wish list to get an iPad now for mm. next time I have a job. And it's like, I always would check my notes, you know, before talking to an actor. Like, it's like I didn't trust myself enough. Mm. Like, and I noticed he didn't do that. And his, his directions were, like, so simple as well. Like, because he, I mean, Phil does a hell of a lot of rehearsal before, which I don't think is normal in telly anyway. But, like, you know, he gets, like, a rehearsal. Well, I don't know if he did on malpractice. I know that for boiling point he has. But, yeah, like, it, it's just, it's just, it's just smooth and confident. And it's like, oh, yeah. That's the standard. How different, you know, as a director, did it feel in the seat doing the second unit of that from when you were doing Requiem? 
Well, I guess when I'm doing Requiem, I'm like, I can just trust all my choices, right? Because it's like, it, I know what it is I'm trying to do and I know how it feels. And also because it's my script, I know like every little bit that I've already got. So I know how to connect the dots. Even though I've watched, you know, Phil's rushes and read the scripts, I don't know it as well as he does. And that's, I think, why I had like, you know, um, the script editor with me, you know, to help me out and answer questions. Um, and also it's like, I'm second guessing myself because I'm like, I've got to, is this what Phil would want kind of thing? Um, and I actually got to know his taste quite well from watching the rushes. He does a lot of like hands to face, you know, like tilt, <laughs> tilt from hands to face a lot. And so, yeah, so it, it it's, uh, cause I, it's not about me. It's about me helping get their beats for the story. So in some ways it's actually a little bit hard. <laughs> so what does it look like? What sort of materials are you sent in the build-up to? So, like, we've hired you as a second unit director. What are you being sent? What information do you have? What are you doing from that point onwards? How are you How are you preparing for it? And then what does it look like when, you, when you're executing it? So, I get sent the script. When I'm working with a director, I'm getting to know them and what they like and what their visual language is for the piece that we're doing. So, I'm back on silent witness and now under a different director um and i've noticed that the thing she likes is she likes wide lenses and um not like a lot of well one of the references she sent me there isn't like a lot of headroom in it and stuff so i'm doing this kind of conversation where i'm figuring out what the rules are of the visual style if you know what i mean um i ask what references of things to watch one of the references i got this time was like Cohen brothers meets the bridge <laughs> Cohen Brothers, if it was like a kind of Nordic crime drama. So then I, you know, research into those styles. And then what I do is once I've kind of got this information, once I've been to a location to recce, I then create packs in which I put in together the shots of the location, references from images from TV shows that they've watched. Um other things like floor plans. Sometimes I just get in the picture and act it out. Uh, the idea being that this like helps to bridge the gap between what I'm doing and what they want. And so they can give me kind of, you know, feedback on it if this is working or other ideas they want to kind of incorporate. I did it with Max Myers on Silent Witness and I think it really like, I don't know, made that process really fun and enjoyable. You know, it's almost like when you're on a job as a director, as an episodic director, and there's something that you're not interpreting from the script, it's really, really important that even if it sounds like a daft question on your page turn, ask the writer, is this what the intention is? And that's, I guess, similar to what you're doing, almost like a page turn, but the visual language page turn of really trying to get under the hood of what they're bringing to that show. Exactly. And, you know, I'll ask them their opinions on characters and what they think the character is what they want the progression of the character to be, how much they want me to reveal in a scene or like how much they want me to hold back on. So yeah, it is a lot of conversations with the director trying to figure that out. But on Silent Witness, they don't have any previous assemblies. So I'm watching like, you know, two series of, uh, the most two most recent series of Silent Witness and then also True Detective was like a massive reference. So then I watched all of True Detective um, and then when they did have the assemblies, I was watching them kind of thing. And then, yeah, I read the scripts and was asking questions about stuff in order to prepare. But with, um, 
with silent witness i got i think a lot more freedom like about like what it is i you know to shoot i wanted to go into just a little five minute spoiler filled malpractice <laughs> you know you've seen it now it's gone out it's done great neve uh algar the lead had put out that 5.13 million people tuned into it it's crazy isn't it <laughs> and if anyone's listening and they don't want to know about malpractice turn it off go and watch malpractice and then come back <laughs> talk us through mm -hmm. a scene what happens in it and how you approached it the floor is yours we well, did two scenes with neve from one from the first episode which Basically, um, Lucinda, who is who Neve plays, has had this really like crazy night during A and E, and there's been a gunman and an overdose that have come in at the same time. And unfortunately, the overdose victim they pass away, unfortunately. And Neve, um, sorry, Lucinda is like really freaking out. And I did the scene in the locker room. Do you know the one I'm referring to? It's just before the ad break. <laughs> it's the bit where she's, there could be negligence, professional negligence. And I think that she's processing that she's fucked up. But yeah, she's, she's freaking out. And so it's, a, I think our scene's like about 30 seconds. Me and uh, Jermaine Edwards shot it. He also went to NFTS. And basically in that scene, we've got someone checking the phone. The version we did might have been like a minute longer, but they've cut it down. And what we were trying to do with that scene is we were trying to get into, you know, Lucinda's headspace. So there's a shot I like that we did where the camera is like, it's really close. It's like an extreme close up, but it's a little bit down and it feels like a little bit blurry. And I just feel Lucinda's like anxiety. And that was like the way that we, you know, we were approaching. We were trying to make the camera put us in the perspective of Lucinda and how Lucinda feels. The way like... I was working with Neve is just like we we just spoke about the circumstances, what was happening. You know, I wasn't gonna result to direct someone like Neve Alga, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like okay. I think Neve is such a good actress that they can just do it. Sometimes you don't have to, you know, don't over direct things. If someone's doing a good job, you just let them do it. So obviously you covered it in a certain way and you follow sort of like all of that and you get that kind of action and the way just like it takes it takes over her physically. But then how were you planning to fit it into what, you know, Phil, Phil Barantini was doing? Mm -hmm. So I'd watched like all of Phil's stuff by this point. And so I think, you know, it felt pretty intuitive in the, on the day how to shoot it, but it was informed by how well I'd gotten known, like know his face and the footage. So I knew what would kind of match what had already come. The script, I think, was like literally like a line or two. I actually can't remember. We changed the order of beats, like in terms of performance. It felt better to Neve and it felt better to me. What we did on the day, uh, Lucinda checks the phone, slides down on the lockers, takes off her top and then was like, just like freaking out on the floor. I feel like it was, maybe it could have been, I can't remember exactly. It might be like takes off the top, then calls, and then, you know, it was basically the same things. We just changed them around and we got a lot of like coverage. They wanted a wide to be safe. They always, I feel like, want a wide in TV just, you know, to have it. Um, and like get, you know, once you've got your medium close up and your wide, you, we had the scene, but we did like quite a bit of different coverage. And then the, they cut it to feel like, the, I really like how Phil cut it. He caused it to feel quite like 
psychological, I feel like. It feels quite subjective when you're watching it. I mean, Phil's really good at that. Like, there's a, a shot he did in, I think, the end of episode two, where she's gone to, like, a phone shop and, like, she's on the floor and the camera's just, like, you know, tracking away. And I was just like, this, yeah, this is, like, good filmmaking. <laughs> so I was trying to match with that. And also, Neve had said something about... um and it wasn't really something I picked up on the script either. Basically, Neve said that she felt like this scene, it's the first time we would see Lucinda having like a panic attack on screen. And so that would really inform like all the other times that we'd see Lucinda having anxiety like that. So I was like, wow, like that, like that, just, I just didn't read that on paper. So then, you know, I was thinking then of all the other scenes that like I'd seen that film shot which were about that and then i'm trying to yeah taking that information and then replicating it um in this scene did you have to sort of like get your shot list signed off or anything like that did you say to feel like i'm going to shoot this and i want to cover it in this way because obviously in tv you have to get a sufficient amount of coverage right even as an episodic director you don't have a handle of the overall kind of arc of that of that journey if you had to just get extra coverage anyway for safety for post for them malpractice only had like one director there wasn't like you know um a second block director it was just phil throughout the whole thing with that scene i can't with the table scene i got given like a full shot list and a floor plan with that table scene, scene which episode is that one that's uh episode four okay um but this scene i was i was capturing on this day that I was working I captured some stuff that Phil had already shot but it didn't match the weather so I was just replicating what Phil had done and then with this scene because it was like such a small scene I think I got asked to do like a wide and a medium close I, I, I honestly can't remember but then when it was in front of me instinctually I felt like I get that coverage you know to so we had it but I also wanted to catch some other things because in that moment, like I felt like it would be more effective. And I think Jermaine uh, Edwards was like feeling that as well. So we we kind of veered off the plan, but we got the plan and then uh, got some extra, if you know what I mean. And as a second unit director, what kind of crew are you given? Obviously you've done a couple of bits of second unit directing now. So you get a DP, do you get a smaller crew? How does it work? What, you, what, set, what you sent out with? there would be two whole crews so you'd have the main unit crew and then you'd have the second unit uh crew on silent witness i got given someone from the art department and they were like you know my lead but they're not like the production designer if you know what i mean but they've been left with me in order to act as like the standby production designer on on the day um yeah it's it's, it's a you have everyone like all there but but they're not the main unit crew but they're normally people who work with the main unit or like for example someone like uh, the DOP I just worked with Tom Hines he's been my um DOP on block one and three of Silent Witness but he actually was the DOP of block two so he like you know he he's he understands the machine and how it works I think I think what's what's apparent about you particularly I'm not saying that of course every director preps but you seem to 
really immerse yourself in the prep, whether you're doing something for yourself or whether it's obviously second unit. Um, and I definitely think that's a takeaway for listening is as a director, your success is your prep. Yeah, and also, you know, I think on one level, as a director, you should always over-prepare because when you get to set, you don't know what's going to happen. So you need to know of like the, the, the B and C plan, you know, when plan A hasn't worked out. And I think that is useful to do that um, because there's more freedom when you are over, over planned. You don't have to stick to it. But the second reason that I have to over prepare is because I am dyslexic. Um, I'm not going to remember it. I'm not going to quickly remember things the way other people are. I have to plan in a very different way and it has to be very thorough. And I think that you said you've got quite severe dyslexia. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so, so. So how so how do you prepare? What what sort of if there's someone listening who's got dyslexia, which I'm sure there is, talk about how you prepare and what what things you do. Okay, <laughs> so are we talking like for second unit work or oh just generally like? Well, first of all, you know, read the script. Uh, I like to do my first reading, and then I like to come back three days later to see kind of what I've retained just on a first go. Um, when I read for it the second time, I write down what each scene is. So like basically just like what happens um and then i'll go through the whole script and i might have questions so then sometimes you know when i've got these questions that i don't understand i refer back to you know the writer or the producer and i'll be like oh, okay so i didn't understand this kind of thing and then they'll give me answers and then i fit that into it because i find inf- information retains better like when i put a space like a day or two between it if you try to cram this stuff, like as a dyslexic person, it might work, but I don't think it will. <laughs> I think you need time to process things. So go back a third time when I do it. Then it's like, I'll break down each scene. Like, what is the purpose of this scene? I'll give it a title. Then I'll break down, you know, each scene into gear changes. Like, you know, a tip I remembered is if there's a topic change, it's a change of tactic. So it's in your job to figure out, um, basically like what your characters want what their objectives are and like how are they doing this to each other um so then i have that (laughs) then of course you have to start talking to a dop on some projects i do storyboards what or most of the time i just shot this because i haven't got the time you know to storyboard something um if we're talking preparation in development or like pre-production, they're two very different things. So in development, I will, depending on the subject matter, I'll probably do heavy amounts of research into that. So like sometimes it's like psychological things of like, you know, if someone has low self-esteem, like how is this a person that would behave? So I'll go on like, you know, psychology journals or whatever. Then I'll watch films that relate thematically or subject matter to or genre wise to the film so i watch a lot of that make notes maybe i incorporate that into like what i'm doing it might change perspective how i look at something when i'm in pre-production i'm working with a dop but the things to think about are like storyboards shot list tram lining so tram line is for if people don't know is like you draw a line on the script to see like how much of it your shot would cover and actually that like is a visual way of figuring out how much coverage you have for a scene for an edit and then you know i go to my locations a lot like i probably don't plan how i'm going to shoot until i've seen the location 
because I know then because I can actually like take pictures of like what the shots are going to be I previs a lot actually um to figure it out but like all of this prep like when you get on set like it, it makes it really easy to know like what you need to get and what you don't like I've only ever really struggled with coverage on one of my shoots and it wasn't one of my films but like I have a lot of meetings with all my teams as well and actually because I've now been shadowing on silent witness I've been in the rooms with like you know when you must have done a lot of this too um when directors are doing page turns like with art department and you see the level of detail that they go into um you yeah like you have to think about like exactly what you need like nothing in that script is you know uh, uh what's the word like nothing's accidental so if there's a prop in there you have to know exactly like what that prop is how it gets used one of the things that marcus and i saw on house of the dragon was because we were there for so long we we used to hop along to a lot of show and tells uh, so that's where the prop props department would lay out all the toys for their episode that they've been talking about for months nice <laughs> and they'd be like okay so now you've got this now you've got this this is going to be a shared prop that you're going to be using with the director that's shooting episode x y and z and it just would be nice to kind of like just see and the director be like, ah, oh, right, right. So I just mentioned this in one of our page turn meetings as a thing, and now here it is materialized. And then yeah. that's and then that's that person's creative input in the storytelling of why it's like that. Yeah, it, it's mad, and you know, even when you're second unit, and like you do have to think about things in that level, um, like to such detail. It's these crews are amazing, though. Like they're always ahead of you, even when you're like really detailed. It's just they're just brilliant, like. I remember a couple of times like Max and I would be in a meeting and maybe a director's just like thinking out loud, but because the people around the table are so talented, you have to, you have to, have to watch what you're saying because they will just take that and it'll materialize in a week. And there you go. And it's like, you said this in the meeting. Hey, that? Well, that, well, that, that's it though. Cause like, that's what I was, I think I was saying last time was, um, when I was on set the second day, I was doing this like kind of establishing of a crime scene and people were listening to me. And in seconds, we're doing it. And I, I was like, wow, I, I was just speaking out loud. And it was happening like so quick. The third AD was just, you know, there like sorting out um, supporting artists. And like the steady camera uh, up was just like there. Like they were looking at me and then like making choices. Like it was just so quick. I just couldn't believe it. And I actually was really proud of my footage on um, Silent Witness as well. And so with, you're saying like there's 10 scenes, um, um, like, are you doing 10 full scenes or like full dialogue pieces or are you doing like fragments of these 10 scenes? With each day that I've done, I've had different types of work. So on my first day of Silent Witness, I got given a few scenes which had dialogue with multiple characters. So there's like a little bit of like subtext going on. Um, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but just to give you an idea. And then sometimes... I was getting, you know, shots that would fit into an action sequence. So I'm like fitting in the puzzle piece. Um, the second day I did was more kind of action packed, <laughs> but there was some scenes I had with multiple characters where I'm also like establishing a crime scene. I think that's okay to say, cause I'm not saying what the crime is and it's silent witness. So <laughs> you know that there's going to be a crime. Um, so that was like, you know, some of the scenes I'm being given are, I would say, pretty important to the overall episode. And then some of the scenes are just kind of fun, like just, you know, 
someone running. <laughs> you know. So obviously, if there's if there's someone running and whatnot or whatever it is, you're not just going to shoot it as M interpreting somebody running. You've already done the research and created the pack, like you've already spoke about, which kind of has that language in it. So you're going to cover that in the way that you've interpreted that the director's approaching their coverage of running. There's that. So you have to think in the mindset of the director. But like, you know, if you're thinking about, well, what is the context of this, you know, shot or scene, whatever it is, uh, you know, bigger picture. If you're getting a shot for an action sequence, what is the feeling of that action sequence? You know, that's like the other thing you've got to keep in mind as well as like fitting into what the director wants. Because that could be many things like, you know, I'm trying not to I'm trying not to give anything away, but what is the overall purpose of that sequence and what does that serve to the story? Um, so yeah, you have to take that into consideration as well as what the director wants. So you're effectively doing the same job as what the episodic director is in breaking down the script and understanding it so that your bits are are accurate, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I re- I read all the scripts. So like for malpractice, five scripts and I read them all and I understand I understood everything. And I got in touch with the writer and I'm asking questions about, you know, what is the purpose of this scene? I might have nothing to do with what I'm doing, but I need to understand the overall arc and like what it is and what it's about. So, you know, sometimes you pick up things that you think are irrelevant and then they end up being really useful when you're talking to an actor. It was it was really good. I really enjoyed it, actually. Because I think when you're starting out, you can move a bit quicker because, I mean, when, when everyone starts specialising, that's when all the elements have to work together and things take more time. But on film and TV sets, people are being paid and they've been doing it for a long time. So it's almost like second nature, like how fast they can set up shots and things. So it's the onus is on you, right, to, to not slow the process down, basically. And what I will say is, though, obviously, positionality-wise, I'm a woman, right? Like, I look like a woman, even if I don't identify that way. And on, on one of the days, like, uh, I was sat in a car waiting with the DOP, and the driver was outside, and I just went, I was like, hey, you're all right. Um, can we go? And then he, he walks around and goes, is the director with you? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I am the director. Um, and he presumed that the DP was because he was an I sh- I imagine because he was an older guy, um, and I I found as well like basically I think looking young is kind of a little bit of a disadvantage um, because I'm nearly thirty as well, but people presume I'm like twenty twenty one, and so like I don't necessarily come with and because I'm quite friendly and, and chatty like I don't necessarily come with that sense of authority so I, I need I need to work a little bit harder at that and it's not necessarily my favorite bit I don't like shutting people down I don't, um, I don't think you should do though because I think that's a, that's a big part of why the industry's harbored a lot of toxic people because people play up to that and I think later on in career that's why you kind of meet people who are just they are quite nasty <laughs> basically yeah um because they feel like they also if they're not like that they need to play up to that and because it's not natural there's it's not done in a tactful way it's just done in a way which is just can be quite abusive and and that's how you break those people's stereotypes i mean marcus and i have our own stories about conversations with drivers yeah. and um <laughs> it is you know if they're not going to meet people that you know like yourself then they're never gonna they're never gonna know are they and the industry has to 
you know, do that. And they are doing that slowly, you know? So that's a that's a positive. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that was what we found great on House of the Dragon was like one of the directors, especially like uh, Claire Kilner, is the loveliest person you could possibly meet and absolutely killing it. And they're, they're doing great episodes. So I think it's one of those, like, you don't have to be the domineering sort of, a, no. like stereotypical asshole to get what you want like you can <laughs> just be a nice person it's just up to everyone else to kind of respond to that and not be prejudiced or like dicks themselves to like think that they can get one up on that person they just need to accept and like listen to what you're saying because it has as much value as someone who screams at them like why would the, why is that better um i i had the same issue at nfts a little bit in the beginning as well like, again, I don't know if it was... Oh, well, I guess I was much younger then. Um, but I felt like I had to really, like... You know, like, you know, I can never just be like, oh, I want to do this. I, like, have to, sometimes have to spend hours with people just, like, trying mm. to explain it. Which I don't think is a bad thing. Like, you should always know why you want to do something. But it also, like, I know in the end we're going to do what I want anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you worked with Bella Ramsey before... But she wasn't. She'd been in Game of Thrones and stuff. So I mean, they've done bits and bobs. But I guess they weren't Bella Ramsey now. But also, I guess like you've worked with Neve Algar. So like you kind of touched on it. But is there like a level of fear and apprehension as you're going into speaking to these people? Like and yeah, how do you kind of like get over that? And any tips for approaching that for people making that step? I will say I definitely didn't have any apprehension when I went and spoke to Neve because I didn't recognise her. <laughs> <and we're... laughs> that helps a lot, yeah, if you don't know who people are. Yeah, well, no, no, I, I knew who she was. I just can't explain how different she looked, like, in comparison to, like, calm with... Is it calm with horses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horses, well, she's kind of, like, short blonde hair in most things, right? Like, even in the thing with, um, with Stephen Graham, uh, I can't remember what it's called, the... Shane Meadows, the Shane Meadows TV show. Virtues. Is it the Yeah, the Virtues. Virtues. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, do you remember my question, which was asked quite flawlessly? Yeah, like, it, basically, is there an apprehension about working with actors? Yeah, of high level, high level actors. I, I couldn't even look Sir Ben Kingsley in the eye. He kind of comes with that presence. He's very, like, um, yeah, I don't know. If, I, I didn't speak to him. I was a bit nervous of him. Because I just, you know, obviously is like a massive legend. But I mean, to be honest though, like, you know, working with Bella, I do think Bella is on their way to becoming like one of the best actors of our generation because they're just really good. They're very easy to work with as well. I, I didn't have to give them very much. And I think the proof in the pudding, like when you watch The Last of Us, like they're doing a really good job. Um... And, and they're not like intimidating at all to speak to. They're, they've got a good sense of humor. Mind you, like <clears throat> when I worked with them, they were 16. So they were a minor. So I, I couldn't necessarily be, you know, myself around them. I was trying to be a responsible, older figure because yeah. you're in a position of power. Um, it was the same with Safia. Safia is going to go on to have an incredible career. I think they're actually equally talented. It's just that one's had a bit more experience. I, I wasn't nervous to meet Neve, like I explained before, because I didn't I didn't recognize them. They're just people like I think you can overthink it because, you know, they're famous and whatever, but it's really irrelevant. Like, But even when you're on on set with Neve, I guess you knew who she was as you was directing them. So how did was there any apprehension then once you were kind of in the situation or was it you just kind of you were just in a flow state because you had to do do the job? 
Well, not really. We kind of bonded a bit over the fact that like my family is from a certain part of Ireland. Um, and they're actually quite friendly as well. Like I embarrassed myself when I first met them, but they're not, you know, they're not hard to talk to. And also it's about the script and what's happening. And literally in the scene, it was like, walk up. It was what we were doing in the script was not complicated. It wasn't like a complicated subtexty scene. It was very like literal. And um, Eve said to me that I give her some good direction. So I was like, hey, hey, hey. Um, I don't know if I did that. <laughs> That's going in. <laughs> so that was quite like a confidence boost. And, you know, obviously the actors are long standing on Silent Witness too. Uh, I think the first day I did a bit better. And the second day I wouldn't, I think I could have done more, but I was just so overwhelmed by all the moving parts. Um, but they were also really nice. They, they'd heard about me as well from the lead director. So they were very humble. Like I haven't really worked with anyone that's like had a massive ego or, you know, like everyone's been very nice to me. And yeah, so they've made it easy to talk to them. That's really important. I think that, I think that's really important that having, you know, someone like the lead director's kind of authenticate you as, as, as the person, I guess, that they're mentoring. That definitely happened with Marcus and I on, on Dragon. You know, having having um, you know Miguel and, and and Ryan Champion has really helped set the tone with the rest of the crew. So they don't, you, you know, so that everybody looks at you like an equal almost. So yeah, everyone's scared of your dad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to finish off that that little chat. Um, it's it's super insightful to to get an insight into that because getting a second unit directing job is basically one of the things you have to do to remove people's ability to say no to you when you're getting that first job um from going from like shorts to long form so yeah super insightful i think i've realized that we always talk about how there isn't like a ladder for directing it's like you kind of you know you just have to go in but i actually think in television second unit directing is the ladder in order to get in an episode but then the the, the other caveat is how do you get second unit <laughs> you didn't um talk about how i got silent witness actually i i told you how i, I got no you did it was it was um it it came from meeting the people at rts right you met the, the panel but you know what's funny about that is like they were they were like yeah you can come shadow and then they asked to interview me for the shadowing so i went thinking i was interviewing for a shadowing scheme and then halfway through i realized i was interviewing for a second unit job Mm. I had to like think on my feet like very quickly. I was preparing for a shadowing job essentially. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really good. What we, we like to do is a thing called a week in the life. And that's because on social media, you see everyone's highlights. On the surface, it seems like everyone's winning except for you. But actually, even if you are winning, it feels really, really slow in between. What we like to do is just ask, what have you been up to this week? Oh my god, this is such like a good week for me to do this because it's like such extremes. So I still have my day job and I work in the pub. Um, and so this week I've done a few days in the pub and I've been working. Um, but also our drains in the toilets are broken at the minute, like completely broken. So what keeps happening is they keep getting clogged. And <laughs> my week has gone from like me talking to like Bella Ramsey one minute to like literally cleaning out someone's poo. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's so mad that absolute animals a lot like 
honest to god it's disgusting so you know in between like obviously my film went online this week and that did really well and it hit a lot of views but in between that i have just been cleaning poop um adult poop <laughs> fantastic um and what, what's bella's reaction been um what, what's she kind of saying if you if you don't mind saying anyway um like i was saying before because i've run about with bella the um I guess, like, even though they're 19 now, I'm always still going to kind of see them as a as a minor. Mm. I don't I don't know what their exact reaction is, but I think we have quite a good bond. Like they mm. they shared the posts. I think I think they enjoyed work. But I I don't know. Um, I I mostly just talked to them about the last of us mm. and like fanboying over like how good it is. Um, what's what's your 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 week been like, us? Um, my week has been um. Well, I saw you, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we 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 did a bit of filming, did a bit of day job stuff, filming food. Yeah, uh, that was fun. I was a vegetarian yeah. shooting <laughs> shooting chicken for a morning. <laughs> no. Um, and yeah, for me, it's 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 been um quite hectic to be honest. Um, so I've been doing like rewrites on my short. Um, I have been um what else have I been doing lots of pre-production basically trying to figure out how to create a weird alien creature is what I'm struggling with at the minute when I've got no experience in that I actually weirdly got invited to a premiere of um Rye Lane which is a lovely lovely little film uh it's like a romantic comedy so I highly recommend going out and seeing that if you want some just like joyful escapism um and then this weekend I mean, beyond the shooting review, Oz, this weekend I've I've been teaching BFI Film Academy, which has been really fun. So I've been speaking to lots of like 16 to 19-year-old filmmakers about what directing is. So that's been pretty cool. So this is all sort of like silent work, which I don't really put on social media, but that's what's been going on, um, keeping busy. And that, and that brings us to the nugget of the week, which can be anything, not necessarily film-related, um, it can be anything that we want to share with the audience that might have inspired you this week. Have you got like a soundbite for Nugget of the Week? I can't remember. What, like a jingle? Yeah. No, we don't. We have a transition. Yeah. From the, we have a transition jingle from the main topic to Week in the Life. What's the jingle go like? Do, 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 do. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll yeah. use that instead. Nugget of the Week. And then... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of D and B. Um, so I want to recommend a TV show called Lavenio, which is a Spanish HBO Max drama that, for some reason, like a lot of people just haven't heard about. It's based on um a real person called Cristina uh, Ortiz Rodriguez, who was better known as Lavenio, who was a yeah a real person. She was a trans woman, a sex worker who eventually became like this tv personality and the um tv show is like based on real events so the tv show follows a younger trans woman called valeria vegas who is another person who wrote lavenio's biography and it starts before uh, valeria's transitioned and they meet and lavenio kind of clocks that valeria's trans and they build a relationship because um lavenio is like an older trans woman um, and then basically Valeria starts writing the book, but each episode becomes like a section of Lavenio's life. Um, but each episode feels like it could be like a different genre or like a different show. Um, 
Avenio is like larger than life. So it kind of feels like the way it's filmed might be exaggerating things at times. But as all this is like going, as we're learning about Lavenia's life, Valeria's like coming into her own as a trans woman. Um, I just think it's really amazing. And I, I don't know why more people haven't heard of it. I think at the minute as well, there's like this real like culture war going on against trans women. Like all media surrounding them is like about being a predator or like it's about, you know, toilets. And it's actually very like dehumanizing. I think actually like, we actually understand so little about what it means to be trans and like even like obviously like I'm out as non-binary but I've had to research a lot into like what it means to be trans and like you know figure out a lot of internalized stuff that I've got to you know figure out anyway the show is just like really funny and tragic and calm and um there was multiple episodes that really had me crying and I think like if we had more access to stuff that centered trans people it would probably just like humanize the trans experience more to the general population it's actually like a master class in storytelling from the way it's written and the way it's shot and like honestly like i wish i'd made it and more people need to watch it <laughs> incredible so if people now that last of us is finished and they need to cry weekly they can go and check that out instead i would say yeah oz what what's going on with you what's your nugget so mine is a book by ed catmull called creativity inc and it's um it's called creative creativity inc an inspiring book at creativity and sh how creativity should be harnessed for business success by the founder of pixar and it is fascinating like it talks about like how they made the first toy story back in the mid 90s and then how they followed up the success with the second one but what it actually did to all the creative team and the business team around it and how they'd worked them to the bone thinking this is the success now, there's one incident in it where one of the staff between Toy Story 1 and 2 was so overworked, they had to bring your kid to the office and they left him in the car and they'd forgotten because they were that overworked and burnt out. And and it talks about like how much pressure you apply to your team and, and, and collaboration and, and respect. It's, it's really, really insightful because you would only see the headlines or the, you know Pixar and Toy Story just smashed it and then Pixar and Toy Story 2, they followed it. But actually, what's what's the expense of that on the workforce that are behind it and the artists behind it? So it's a great book. Amazing. And yours? Yeah, my nugget of the week is it's actually an artist. Um, I'm not going to say that they're an Instagram artist, but if you check out their Instagram, they're called Miles Johnston, and the page is called Miles underscore Art. So they've got 1.1 million followers. Um, and yeah, I wish you could share some of those with us. And it is just, it's just got some really sort of soulful and surreal and dark art. And it's, it's just kind of one of those things, you know, when you see it, it's like quite challenging to look at almost. So yeah, that's kind of it. It's very cool. Awesome. So that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you, Em. It's been, it's been great. It's been insightful. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large. And we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you, so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Directors Take podcast. We're also on Twitter at Directors Take. M, are you on social media? I'm on Instagram at MJ Gilbertson. Until next time, keep learning, keep failing, and keep the faith. <laughs>